I must have. I guess you did. <laughs> Today we're going to uh, look at the story of Job. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open it. It's the uh, first book to the left of Psalms, right before Psalms. Job is a very interesting story that uh, often isn't preached on for a variety of reasons. One is it's dealing with suffering. But Job is a fantastic book for several reasons. It's a very old book. It's a very ancient work. We're not quite sure when it was written, but the, uh, the account is of someone who lived a long time ago, probably in the time of Abraham even. Um, Job offers sacrifices for his family. The way that they measure his wealth and his animals and things like that is an ancient scheme for measuring wealth. So we're talking about a story a long, long time ago, perhaps as old as 2000 B.C. If that's the case, then this, uh, this story is very important in our theology for a variety of reasons. Number one is that it raises the question right at the beginning of kind of recorded history of what about suffering? So apparently the ancients suffered like we do. And they wrestled a lot with what, what's all this suffering about? Alongside of Job, there are several other works throughout that time period where the various nations wrestled with what is suffering all about. But Job is unique in that it, it gives us a perspective from God's perspective, the one true living God. All the other nations didn't know God. They just had to wrestle philosophically with what suffering was about. And so they could never come to the conclusion. In fact, the conclusions that they did come to are refuted in Job. So Job is... It's a literary masterpiece. It's an ancient work that's well-written. We're not surprised if God inspired it, that it would be well-written. It's wonderful. Um, although Job delves into the question of how suffering might occur, it doesn't answer the question, why me? That's a good question to ask, by the way, but Job doesn't answer the question, why me? It answers a much bigger, much deeper question. It reveals that suffering is not always the result of sin. We'll see that in just a moment when we read the opening paragraph. Suffering is not always the result of sin. Job's story reveals the significance and advantage of reflection about what God is doing. This whole book, I mean, a large chunk of it is Job and his friends exploring what on earth is going on. How is it that we drive down the highway? We say we believe in a sovereign God, right? And we drive down the highway, and maybe we're going to a meeting, and we, are, we have a tire blowout. First thought, first thing that happens, rightfully so, is a little bit of panic. And the adrenaline rush, we get our car under control, pull off to the side of the road, and we think, uh, oh, no, I'm going to be late for this meeting. And maybe we're dressed a little nicer than we want to be changing tires. And a guy pulls up behind us and says, uh, yeah, I'm a mechanic. Let me change your tire for you. So five minutes later, the tire's changed, and you're back on the road, and, and uh, hopefully you uh, honored him for his work, and um, pretty soon you're into your meeting, and you totally forget about it, and never once did you stop to say, what was God doing in the middle of this? If we say we believe in a sovereign God, then shouldn't we be asking those questions? It's called theological reflection. Everybody reflects. Just, you could share with one another the stories of when times have been hard. Everyone reflects. You've been laid off, you reflect, don't you? Uh, you lost a loved one, you reflect. But Job calls us to reflect theologically. That's what we should be doing. So when that incident happens on the highway, we should say, God, what are you doing here? What, are, what is it you're doing in me? What is it you're doing through me? 
into the lives of others? Um, that's an important question, and Job raises that. Um, redemptively, it shows in history that God wants to move us away from what we call a retribution theology. That's a theology that says uh, you reap what you sow. You must deserve it. Something you did wrong, bad. Suffering is somehow connected to the way we live our lives. And Job is going to completely refute that. Job is going to do away completely with this idea that you reap what you sow. That's not true at all. We serve the one true living God, and he is sovereign. It's going to raise the question, do you really believe that God is working in your life for good in all that he does? Do you really believe that God is at work in your life for all that is good for you? Everything he's doing is for good. Do you really believe that? And if you really believe that he is sovereign and has absolute control over all that happens, what that means is nothing happens in your life without his express permission. And that means that if you suffer, that's good. That's for your good. That's the real question we're going to have to wrestle with. Job is exceptional. It surprises his friends as we get into it that God did not follow the accepted norms. In fact, they're going to be surprised because uh, God's not very happy with them and the advice that they give. Well, let's set the stage. Let's begin by reading Job chapter 1. Let's just read the basic story. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would, they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fat feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. What a good father. What a good father. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth through it. This next verse is not what you ever want to hear. Then the Lord said to, Job, uh, to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Who started the conversation? God. I like flying under the radar screen as much as possible. I hope to never have God say to Satan, Have you considered my servant Jim? And if he does, I hope I'm there to say, no, 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 really, you should look at Ron. <laughs> Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, does, God fear, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread through the land. 
But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay, out, do not lay a finger. Right away we learn something very quickly about Satan. Satan is only allowed to do in your life what God gives him permission to do. I am absolutely convinced if God gave him permission, my life would be gone that quick. He would take it. So Satan is only allowed to do what he has permission to do. Don't ever forget that. Who's the one that started this whole discussion? God. It wasn't Satan. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am alone and the only one, I mean, I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on their camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the earth. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead." And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. In the span of about three minutes, Satan, I mean, Job learned that he had lost everything. Except his wife, who he may wish he had later on. He lost everything. Can you even begin to grasp the horror, the pain, the, just the shock? All of your children, their families, everything you own, is destroyed, you have nothing left? Can you imagine that? What would you do? Here's what Job did, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Would that be your response? Is that how you would respond? You see why he was a righteous man. He had a very good theology. Chapter 2, on another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Oh boy, here we go again. Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Divine boasting. Like we do with our children. We're proud of our children, right? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Well, Satan replied, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, very well then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan can only do what he has permission to do. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Okay, a couple of thoughts about this opening scene. What's clear is that Job is innocent of any wrongdoing. He hasn't done anything wrong, has he? This quickly addresses a common answer to the problem of suffering in the ancient Near East, and I would say we live with today. How many times do we look at somebody who's, who's where they are in life and we say, well, they're there because they didn't work hard or because they, um, whatever reason, you fill in the blank. I have. How many of you have done that? Look to someone else. Job did nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing. So this opens the door because of this opening section at the very earliest of the Bible. This opens the door for us to begin to explore new ways of thinking or truth about who God is in our lives and what God is going to do. But similarly to that, it made it clear that Job is not on trial. Is he? Job's not on trial. The discussion is between God and Satan. He's declared righteous by God, so this allows the story to focus on God rather than Job. If Job was the one who had sinned and has caused that, then the focus, the spotlight would have been on Job, but it's not. The focus is on God and what's going on with Satan. That should be a good lesson, that life is a lot bigger than you. Your story, your life, fits into a much bigger story. And you have no idea what God is doing to display you before others. Angelicos, Satan, demons, other believers, unbelievers. When you accept the Lord, when you enter into that relationship with him and your faith becomes real, you become a billboard for the Lord. He is yours to use as he sees fit. But do you really believe he's going to use it for good? That's the question. So, In retribution theology, you reap what you sow, it's easy to focus on why the wicked prosper and why the faithful seem not to. But there's a much bigger story than simply whether we prosper or not. So Job, the story of Job, tackles this more challenging question. But it's also clear that God initiated the conversation, the discussion, and he approved the course of action. That's another principle that we see all throughout Scripture. God never shirks his responsibility. And we're going to see it in the very end that he actually takes responsibility. Job never catches a wind, a whisper of what's happening. He has no idea. We are given the insight years, millennium later of what happened. But Job never got that, just as you hardly ever get insight into your suffering. The insight is there. You just can't access it. So God never shirks his responsibility. Ever. My final observation is that Job has a very good perspective. He has a good perspective about life and death. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. About possessions, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Everything on the earth belongs to the Lord. It's not yours. You're, you're borrowing it. And finally, about God. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
He has a very good thinking. So in order to learn the lessons of Job, we're going to do something here. We're not going to go through and look at all the arguments of all of his friends. We're just going to capture just a snapshot. And I'm going to walk you through the book of Job, and I want you to see what happens with Job. Job begins to deteriorate because the pain starts to wear him down and get the best of him. He starts here, and he ends up over here. Very different place. So let's jump into it. The first thing that happened is his good friend Eliphaz comes along and he suggests, he just makes a suggestion that an injustice might have occurred. Look in chapter 5, verse 7. Human beings are born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed the miracles that cannot be counted. So... If I were you, I would present a case. Uh, there's just a, just a hint that there may be an injustice here. In other words, Job has a case. He doesn't encourage him to say, trust the Lord. He said, if I were you, I would appeal this to the Lord. So look at Job's response in chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut off my life. You ever wish the Lord would just take your life? Just end it? You'd be so wonderful. Uh, God has another plan, by the way. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. So rather than, than focusing completely on God, he's, he's shifted just a little bit. I wish the Lord would just end it. He would listen to me and just stop it. So I really don't want God's plan. <laughs> I want him to bring it into what's happening. The pain is too great. So Bildad and Zophar come along, and they, uh, they have a few suggestions as friends. Turn over to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. This is Bildad speaking. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. So, so the perspective of God has moved from a God whom we submit to and we worship whatever he's going to do to a God that we can now say, let's present our case. If you had just done the right thing, go back and repent. Go back before the Lord. And he'll listen. So Job responds to this in chapter 9, right at the beginning. Indeed, I know this is true. So you can see even his own perspective is shifting. I know this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wish to dispute with him, they cannot answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? So in theory, it sounds good. So he's admitting that, that I could talk to the Lord. But is that really even possible? Then look in verse 16. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. Boy, can you detect the hopelessness? He's not going to pay attention. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. 
So Job, while he agrees, he begins to focus more on himself. Can you see the spotlight shifting? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he's saying, if I could stand in his presence, he wouldn't even listen to me. So the spotlight is slowly moving. The pain's wearing him down. That's what happens in life. And the spotlight is moving to himself. So his pain begins to exceed his ability to understand. Look in chapter 10. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. See how far he's moved from blessed be the name of the Lord? Do not declare me guilty. Tell me what you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Why me? Why are you blessing the wicked but not me? You see it? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he's moved. Why? Why are you blessing the wicked and not me? What have I done wrong? He has allowed his pain to blind him to God's purposes. And he's begun to demand answers of God. So Zophar comes along in chapter 11 and gives him a little bit more life, a little bit more advice. He basically says, if you get your life together, the suffering will pass in chapter 11. Look in verse 13. If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that's in your hand, obviously it's there, you wouldn't be in trouble. <laughs> and if you allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, f- then free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm, and you'll stand without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. If you get your life together, then everything will be okay. That's got to be the cause of the problem. How many times do we think that way? It's easy, isn't it? Look what Job says. This pain is continuing to shift this perspective. Chapter 13. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard it and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But as I, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Then down in 15, the second half of the verse. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would ever dare come before him. So Job has now deceived himself into thinking that he will be vindicated. Why? Because God is wrong. God made a mistake. Okay, turn over to chapter 16. We're getting near the end of the discussion now. Look at Job's final, I want to highlight some of his final words. Um, No, go over to chapter 19. He begins to demand that God play fair. He begins to claim his rights. Chapter 19, verse 6. Know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, who's he crying violence to? God, though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He's beginning to demand that God play fair. He's crying violence. What have you done? This isn't right. Go all the way over to chapter 23 and listen to his final statements. By the way, a year's gone past now. So what happened over here when God did this? We're now a year later, and the pain has worn him down. So now he's at the end of that year, and the suffering is too great. 
He feels it is too great anyway. So in chapter 23, look what he says. And Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand, his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. He's accusing God of being a coward because God's not showing up. If only I could get to him. I would state my case before him and fill my mouths with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? Absolutely not. He would not press charges against me. There, there, if we could get to him, the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. His final act is to shake his fist. God's a coward. If I could only get into God's presence, he would listen to me, and he would repent, and he would change his mind. This is remarkable. Because James 5.11 holds up Job as a hero of one who, who endured. This gives us a glimpse of how God views us. He's a hero. God is not surprised by this. It's not about Job. Job is allowed to shake his fist. This is far deeper than this. It's far deeper than Job's response. This is a statement about a sovereign God. So, some observations. Job's decay was gradual. As the pain wore on, his perspective deteriorated. It shifted from completely to God to completely to self. And that's remarkable. Now, what does God do here? Let me tell you what he does not do. I'm going to read some verses for you. He doesn't chastise Job. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't rebuke Job. He doesn't criticize Job, nor does he abandon him. Nor does he comfort him. important to remember that. Nor does he comfort him. What he does is he exposes and he uncovers Job. That's what he does. Chapter 38. Fantastic chapter. This storm appears, this whirlwind of wind and dust. Chapter 38. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, hmm, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? The old translation, gird up your loins like a man. Prepare to defend yourself, he says. I will question you and you will answer me. So you got your hearing. Don't ever demand a hearing before God. So here's what he says. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, surely you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Verse 6, on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 19, what's the way to the abode of light and where does the darkness reside? Verse 22, have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? And he goes on and on and on. And he asks all these questions of Job. And what's the answer to everyone? No. I am God. I am sovereign. I am in absolute control and you are not. You see it? It's a powerful way. This is how God responded to Job. Remember, he didn't criticize or condemn or rebuke or any of that. He didn't comfort. He simply exposed him. Job's response is in chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. 
How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Okay, God, I get your point. But God's not done. Look in verse 6. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Gird up your loins like a man. Prepare to defend yourself. That's the more modern way of saying it. I will question you and you shall answer me. So now God brings up the heart of the whole argument of Job. This one, this two verses right here are the entire theology of suffering. Verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? How easy it would have been for God to say, Satan did that, not me. Job never knew. Job, would you discredit what I have decided is right? That's what justice is. Would you really do that? What happened to you was my decision. Are you really going to challenge that? Look at the second question. Would you condemn me? Really? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Is that what you really want to do? Do you really believe that everything God does in your life is good? If we truly believe in a sovereign God, that means that 100% of what happens to you is under his sovereign control. Job had no idea the bigger picture. All he knew was the pain. And so God asked those two questions. Would you really discredit my justice? Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? It's a remarkable, remarkable story. Look at Job's final response in Job 42. Now you see why he's a righteous man. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Well, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. There's a bigger story even if you don't understand it. Even if you don't understand it, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. Well, my ears have heard of you. My eyes have now seen you. Therefore, I despise myself or humble myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He starts over here and the pain is warning, worn him down so that he's now focused completely on himself and God introduces himself to him. He has a meeting and God, he comes right back. I humble myself and I repent in dust and ashes because you have spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful too wonderful for me to understand. It's, it's not about you. You're part of a bigger story. You have no idea when God brings what appears to be injustice or suffering or persecution into your life. You have no idea what he's doing. But I can assure you, he's doing something good with it. It may be for the benefit of the heavenly host. The angels get to watch and marvel and glorify him. It can may be for the benefit of the believers around you. Maybe for the benefit of unbelievers to see how you respond. It may be for the benefit of testing your own faith. 
helping you grow. I have no idea. These things are too wonderful for me to know. But I can assure you there's a bigger story than your life. And you're part of it. Well, the day you, your faith became real, you became a billboard for the Lord to use. You became a tool in his hands to use it any way he wants, to bring his own self glory. So Job's final response is humility and brokenness. His perspective shifts back to God. God's final response, interestingly enough, is to direct anger against Job's friends, not Job. Job's not the one that got in trouble here. Look at the very next verse, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's his friend, I am angry with you and your two friends. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my, Job servant, my servant Job has. Be careful how you give advice to people. When things are going well in their life, be careful because you might find yourself on the other side of where you want to be with God. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for, my, for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your foolishness. These are very strong words. When someone around you is going through deep waters, tough time, be very careful what you say to them. There is good advice to give. Just give the good advice. Just give it. When my wife died, a Christian came up to me, caught me crying one day just a week after she died. I didn't cry very long. They just came in surges. I'd cry and then I'd I dry the tears. And he comes up to me and he says, you know, you need to learn to rely on the inner strength of Jesus Christ. That was pretty helpful at that moment in time. I just looked at him and said, you ever wonder what I'd be like if I wasn't doing that? Things that sound so good to us, I, I won't deal with you according to your foolishness. These things are too wonderful for us to understand. That's what it means. So let me give you some concluding observations. By the way, God went and blessed Job incredibly more than he had started out with. Number one, God controls circumstances. So what does that mean? Well, I think it's okay to question God. The Bible does that all the time, but it's not okay to renounce him. It's okay to start asking questions. It's okay to ask why, but not to demand an answer. If you demand an answer and you only get angry if you don't get it, that just says something about your own faith. It's okay to ask why. That's a great question. What's going on, Lord? I, what's, what's too wonderful for me to understand that's happening to me here? There's nothing wrong with that. Circumstances, they reveal our character. So if God is in control, this is important. Circumstances reveal our character, not determine it. And yet we love to blame our circumstances. Why are you discouraged? Well, I'm discouraged because the stock market's down. Why are you angry? I'm angry because they turned down the loan on my house. You see what I mean? No, no, no. Why are you discouraged? I'm discouraged because I'm a broken, sinful human. Why are you angry? I'm angry because I'm broken. I don't know the right response. So our circumstances, they reveal the character that's already there. So if God really wants to transform your character, what's the best thing he can do is manipulate the circumstances to expose what needs to be redeemed. Expose that deep anger, that doubt, that fear, that struggle. That's why in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the emphasis is on self-control, not control of circumstances. 
God is absolutely sovereign and in control, and he knows what you need. And he knows what's best and what's right. My second point is that theological reflection is necessary. Stop and ask the question, how am I responding to this adverse circumstance? I lost my wife. Honest truth, when she died, I was holding her hands. I had wrestled with all of this for several years because I knew she was terminally ill. And uh, when she died, I was holding her hands and her heart stopped. And the very first thing I did was chuckle quietly. Tears started to flow because I just said goodbye to my best friend. And um, inside I thought, huh, God just took away my best friend, the most important person to me in the world. I knew who did it, and I still love him. My faith is real. My faith is genuine. It's okay to reflect and ask yourself, how am I responding to this? Am I responding appropriate as a mature believer in the Lord? Am I responding as one who believes that there's something out there much bigger and too wonderful for me to understand? That God is using me in this way on purpose? And finally, this sets the stage. This story sets the stage, my final point, for the coming new covenant. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good to those who what? Who believe in him, right? We know that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to all of us. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to go beyond what you can bear. He doesn't mind taking you right to the edge of the cliff, but he doesn't take you one step beyond. Right? That's all that language coming out. Philippians 1, 29. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. The word granted, that verb, it's the word for grace. We just don't have a verb for grace in our language. We used to in Old English. To you it has been graced. It's the grace of God that you both believe and you suffer. That's grace. That's an evidence of God's grace because that's when you're brought back, your faith is strengthened and tested, and you are used by the Lord. I've asked several people, would you allow the Lord to let you suffer if it meant that your children would come to know him? Every parent says yes. That's hypothetical. Well, you don't know what's happening. That could very well be what's happening. There's something too wonderful for us to understand about it. That's the story of Job. Suffering is not by accident, nor is it without purpose. Let's pray. Father, uh, I'm not going to pray that you would relieve the suffering in our group. Lord, that's your decision. What I do pray is that you would help us to live lives of faith and that you would use it in a productive way to reflect your glory to each other, to the world around us, Lord, and to the angelic host who are watching. Help them to, to enjoy you in new and fresh ways just like you do us. Thank you, Lord, for being so committed, so involved in every detail of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.